to Luke chapter 6. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spend the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who'd come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure, by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. It is a great joy to be here, and uh, it's marvellous to see uh, the way the church has already grown from its original core. It's only three months old, so this is kind of incredible, really. So it's just great to be here, and uh, just want to encourage you to kind of keep going. Last weekend, I was in Glasgow. Uh, I wish I was there this weekend, not that I don't want to be with you, but it's a great time to be in Glasgow when England have just beaten Scotland in the rugby. <laughs> but um, you can't be sure about that, so it's just as well I wasn't. So, but there's a, I was at church there, it was having its 25th anniversary, and it, it was a church, the history was, it was down to two or three people, uh, 25 years ago, two, two or three very faithful older people who simply said to a group of Christians, will you come in and help to revitalize this work? And in God's goodness, that happened, and there was about 200 people gathered in a marvelous kind of uh, refitted hall and so on, doing loads of stuff into the community. Uh, so I just want to encourage you, what God can and will do among you. But turn back with me, please, to uh, Luke chapter 6. You're making your way through Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 6. Now, once again, the uh, national debate has kicked off as to what it means to be British. Uh, in his uh, latest uh, book, uh, The Road to Little Dibbling, Dribbling, Bill Bryson, the American travel writer, has a typically funny account of his experience in trying to get British citizenship. So he goes along to this soulless building uh, in Sevenoaks, uh, and he's, he's given these questions. There's two parts to it. One, you must be fluent in English, so they decide he's American, it's good enough. But the second is, you must answer these questions. And this is where it becomes excruciatingly difficult. Let me show you. So, for instance, how many people here are British? Okay, just about everybody. If you're not sure what you are, <laughs> then 
For the Brits here then, what is Sheikh D. Mohammed famous for? He brought shampoo, he introduced shampoo to Britain. Okay, well, let's try and... When were life peerages created, Jackie? Oh, it's good to see you here, Jackie. When were life peerages created? No idea. Anybody any idea? Well, it wouldn't do very well, would we? 1958. Come on, you must get this one. What is the real name of the Big Ben Tower? St. Stephen's, who said that? Yeah, very good. Not right, I'm afraid. Good, but, good, but not good enough. So, it's the Elizabeth Tower. So I think we better all go away and apply for a different nationality. It's really tough, isn't it? So Bill Bryson recounts this story. It's hilarious. I encourage you to kind of get hold of the book. It's fiendishly difficult, obscure questions to be answered to prove that you are fit to be admitted to become British. But there is, of course, a serious side to all that questioning because the granting of citizenship has very far-reaching implications both for the individual and for the nation and for successive generations. Now, the passage we come to this morning in Luke's Gospel in one way is all about citizenship. Not in Britain or any other country come to that, but in the new nation that Jesus has come to earth to establish that began 2,000 years ago with his arrival. And the whole idea of the kingdom of God dem dominates the landscape of the New Testament. As the arrival of the wise men showed at, uh, at Christmas time, as we call it, Jesus comes as a king, and he comes to establish a kingdom, the kingdom of God. But he's no ordinary king, as we're reminded in Revelation. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the supreme eternal king and the kingdom the nation that he's establishing is eternal because if the son gives life to the citizens of that kingdom it is eternal life it's everlasting life so to be a citizen of this kingdom is actually the greatest imaginable privilege in life that any human being could know it's to be invested with an honor that knocks all the knighthoods and life peerages into a cocked hat. It's be, to be given the passport to heaven and eternity. It's to be part of a nation, in Peter's words, in 1 Peter, that will never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who believe. It is that big, it is that massive, it is that glorious, it is that wonderful. Wow! To belong to this kingdom. But entry to the kingdom isn't about answering some obscure questions. It's not about your ethnic status. It's not about your uh, abilities. As John puts it in his prologue in John chapter 1, to be born into this kingdom comes about not by natural descent, not because of your ethnicity, or because of human decision or a husband's will, no, it's entirely down to God. He gives birth to every citizen in his kingdom. It's entirely down to his grace and his favour. Yet the frightening thing that Jesus is warning about in this passage this morning is that it's possible to think that you're part of this kingdom when in fact 
you are most definitely not. So, how do we know if we pass the nationality test for heaven? How can we tell if we belong to this kingdom or not? Well, Jesus, as I want to show you, says that in effect there's three clear marks that show whether a person is truly a member of this kingdom, a citizen of heaven or not. And to help us remember, they're all going to begin with the letter D, because you haven't done too well on the questions so far. So at least this is D for dunces. So I'm not normally this, but I know people quite well. So if you're a visitor here and think, what's this bloke on? Who is he? Just, just indulge me. Three Ds for us to remember. And the first is the mark of doctrine. Verses 12 to 16. Now the background is this. Jesus has spent the night on the mountain and he descends and what does he do? He comes down and he selects 12 of his disciples whom he designates as apostles. Verses 14 to 16. Now this is a hugely significant and symbolic act. He's already been talking back in chapter 5 verse 39 about replacing the old wine with new wine. And now what he's doing is appointing 12 apostles to mirror, well what do you think they're mirroring? Those of you that know a bit about the Bible, what do you think it's a reflection of? 12 12 tribes, yeah. So he's mirroring the 12 tribes of Israel that the Old Testament is replete with. It will be the task of this 12, these ethnic descendants of the tribe of Israel, not only to eyewitness Jesus' life and miracles, his death, his resurrection, but to carry the explanation of the meaning of it into the world, in what we might sum up and call the gospel. So he calls these 12 men to himself. And it will be through the teaching of this gospel, what the creed calls the apostolic gospel, because it originally entrusted to these 12 men, that every single citizen, down through the decades, down through the centuries, down through the millennia, who will be born into God's kingdom, it will be coming through this message, this apostolic gospel, this eyewitness account, this reflection, this repeating of the teaching of Jesus about himself. This is how one of them put it, and you need to turn to it, but John, the Apostle John, late in his life, put it like this. Speaking of Jesus, he said this, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, which our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and appeared to us. We proclaim what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. Now there's loads of things tied up in that but you get the essence of it. What John is saying is this Jesus who came to earth from the Father, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, we saw him, we touched him. How many people, you know, have you come across that you, you talk to and they say something like this, well, of course, if I'd seen Jesus or if I could see Jesus now, if I could see the miracles and all the rest of it, I'd believe. Maybe you've not come across that, maybe you live a very sheltered life, but that's the kind of thing, isn't it? The answer of the New Testament is no, you wouldn't. 
There were actually loads of people who saw it and heard, but didn't believe. But here's the 12 who saw, who believed, who testify, and who laid down their lives in order that this message might be taken out into the whole world. And it all starts back here in Luke 6 and verse 11. You see, the descendants of the old tribes, the leaders of the nation, we've already read, or we would read back there in verse 12, 10 and to 12 of um, Luke 6, had rejected Jesus. And his response to that rejection of the old Israel is immediately to appoint these 12 men to replicate the old, but with a new nation, a new Israel. And in this new nation, there's going to be continuity and there's going to be discontinuity. Continuity in the sense that Jesus is starting on the same basis as before, with 12 tribes, 12 apostles. But discontinuity in the sense that this is going to be as different as a 747 jumbo jet is to the original flying machine of the Wright brothers. There's similarities, but there's dissimilarities. There's continuity, but discontinuity. And the 12 apostles are the future, not because they're of the ethnic descendants of Israel, but because they're a spiritual descendants. They're now not so much of the bloodline, but of the faith line. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched. We're telling you, we were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. So the first mark of being in the kingdom of God is believing what the apostles hand down to you. Now that in itself is remarkable, isn't it? Just think about it. Go to work tomorrow and you say, so I'm a Christian. What basis are you a Christian? Well, I've believed a report of some men 2,000 years ago as to the life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of a man who lived in Palestine those two millennia ago. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it, that you should frame now your whole life, the whole ambition of your life, around that event, but it's all traced back to this, you see. It's this message once delivered. It's an incredible message. It's God's message of salvation. The new wine has come. But every Christian who is a true Christian is on the basis that they've heard the message and by God's grace and the work of his spirit, have trusted themselves to Christ and the reliability of the truth that the apostles have reported. That's how a person becomes a citizen of heaven. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not, as one lady said to me once, oh, I wish I had your faith, as if it was like the measles, something that you caught. Faith is actually believing the apostolic message, this historical, confirmed, authenticated message of what Jesus came to do. And that's the basis of the church. It's the apostolic doctrine. First mark of a Christian, that you believe the truth. You believe the truth. And actually, you believe the truth before you belong to the kingdom. You don't belong and then believe. You believe... And that births you to belonging. It's a life-giving word. Believe the doctrine about who Jesus is, the King, the Lord, the Saviour. But let's move on. What's the second mark? Well, the second mark is in verses uh, 17 to 19. It's the mark of devotion. 
Second D, first one is doctrine, second one is devotion. Jesus, you see, already it's been unfolded for us in Luke's Gospel, has shown himself to be the promised one, this Messiah that the Jews had anticipated for all these centuries. He had come, the fulfilment of all those prophecies. And as such, he is the right object of human devotion and dependence. That's the significance of the miracles, of the signs. They authenticate who Jesus is. And he's not only special in that he fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament as being the great healer, but he ushers in this new age. That's the significance of the healings and the miracles here, you see, because the great twin problems of mankind are sin and death, evil, the results of evil. And Jesus comes, and he comes to conquer those things. And the mark of the new age, verse 18, is the eradication of the effects of sin and evil. He just puts markers down. He's saying, this is what I've come to do. And in very real way in this passage, as you might have picked up from the imagery, he comes down the, mo the mountain. Who else in the Old Testament came down the mountain? Moses. Jesus comes down the mountain. What did Moses do? He came down the mountain and gave the Lord, the Ten Commandments. Jesus comes down to inaugurate his kingdom, not on Ten Commandments, but based around his person, who he is, and what he says. And the point of this little section in this passage is that members of this new nation, this kingdom of God, must be devoted to and dependent upon him. The Bible is as clear and uncompromising on this as it possibly could be. You see, the people gathering around him in verse 17, they weren't just any people. Let's see what it says again. He went down and stood on a level plain, and a large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. In other words, who were they? What nationality were they? They were Jewish. They were Israelites. Those people that came down the mountain onto the plain to hear him were representative of the Old Testament people of God. They were Jewish, they were Israelites. And they're going to be the founding of this new nation, this New Testament people of God. But again, you see, there's continuity and discontinuity. The new nation springs out of the old. All who stand before him are Israelites. But the discontinuity is this. The new Israel is no longer going to be defined by your ethnic origin by race but by dependence and obedience to Jesus and his word and in fact this new Israel this new nation this new kingdom of God will embrace people from every tribe and every nation every every ethnic group on the face of the earth in other words citizenship of heaven is open to everybody it's no longer restricted just to people who have the privilege of a certain ethnic background because the new kingdom has arrived. That's why Jesus speaks as he does in verse 22. You see, the, this is a sign whether you are part of this kingdom or not. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Belonging to and identifying with Jesus is now the hallmark of a person in the kingdom of God. It's believing the truth about Jesus, but it's loving the person of Jesus.
There's no disjoin between those two. It, Jesus comes, doesn't he, full of grace and truth. We're draw, drawn to Jesus because of who he is. But he says the most offensive things, doesn't he? Especially in our culture. He talks about the reality of hell and of judgment. He speaks more of those things than he does of heaven, in fact, as recorded in the Gospels. There's much of what he says that is so politically incorrect today, he'd never get a hearing in the media. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. I mean, how politically incorrect can you get? You can't get more politically incorrect than that, can you? If you're going to identify with this Jesus, you're going to face the storm as they were facing the storm. You see, he came to his own, says the Bible, and his own rejected him. The Israelites, by and large, rejected him. But not altogether. He took 12 of them. He took more than 12, but he took this 12. And they became the foundation of this new family, this new nation. But it was faith in him. It was devotion to him that was the hallmark of it. How do you know if you're the real deal? Well, this is the frightening thing. You could say this morning, well, of course, I believe the Bible. I believe the gospel. And you could say, yeah, of course, I love Jesus. But what does Jesus say to that? He says well, there's one more proof. It's the, it's the clincher. It seals whether we really belong to him or not, whether we're really part of this new kingdom that God is building or not. And it's there in verses 20. To 26. Did you notice as I read, what we've got here is a kind of matching series. There's four, four encouragements and four warnings. The encouragement's about the true disciples, the warning is about the false disciple. The four encouragements are headed up with the word blessed. Blessed are you, who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you. The four warnings are headed up by the word woe. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. But before we think a little bit about those two sets of four, let us deal with a couple of misconceptions, what Jesus is and isn't saying here. You see, we could read that quite superficially and think, okay, what Jesus is saying here is that you become a member of this kingdom, you're part of God's family, you're made right with God by giving up on food and wealth and happiness. It just confirms what I've always thought about Christianity. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's out to spoil life. You might think that, but nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, when you think about it, what Jesus is describing is natural human religion. How does any religion in the world work outside of Christianity? It works on this basis. It's what I do to please God. It's what I bring to him. And we have this kind of idea, don't we, that um, somehow it's kind of like a pair of scales, but it's always I do more good things than I do bad things. So on the day of judgment, the good things are going to outweigh the, the bad things, and so God's saying, okay, you can come in. Any human religion is all about my effort, what I do to make it up the mountain to get to God. Couldn't be farther from what Jesus is saying here. Earned forgiveness is never the Bible's way. 
Jesus already made the point in chapter 5 that he is the divine healer who's come to cure us. Look at verse 20. Who's being, dis- who's being addressed here? It's very important. Who's he talking to? Tell me. Dave, who's he talking to? Disciples. These are people who are already followers of Jesus. These are people who have already trusted him. They're already in his kingdom. They're already suffering some of the adverse effects of being in his kingdom, the persecution that's come there. He's talking to disciples. He's not talking about how you earn your way into heaven, how you earn your way into citizenship with God. He's not saying you get right with God by giving up on food and by by wealth and happiness. Misconception one. No, these four encouragements are of somebody who's already right with God. That's who he's speaking to. But there's a second misconception here that he's kind of speaking in absolutes. He's advocating some kind of Christian asceticism or communism. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. You see, if we took such a view, then logically every disciple who is poor would be in the kingdom of God and everybody who's rich wouldn't be. And that's really bad news for everyone here here this morning because, you know, on the world scale, we are all very rich, as Rob's already kind of reminded us this morning. You only have to go to different parts of the world to realise that on the world scale, we are incredibly wealthy. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? No, he's not talking, he's not giving a general statement about wealth and pleasure. The early church didn't practice communism. No, he's speaking, remember, to a particular group of disciples who were having a hard time, who were poor because they had given up everything. They'd left their fishing business, they'd they'd left their livelihood to follow him. They were going without because of their commitment to Christ. They were finding life painful because they were being identified with him when the rest of their countrymen especially the leaders, the influential one, were determined to eradicate Jesus. It's not the place to be, is it? You're definitely offside if you're in that place, identifying with that kind of person, when all the wealth, all the power around is determined to eradicate Jesus. And that's what was going on. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were furious, began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In a parallel passage in the Gospel, in the other Gospels, it talks about how they might destroy Jesus, how they might kill him. Now, Jesus is not talking in absolutes about wealth or food or this kind of thing. He's actually talking to Christians who are facing a really tough time and going to face an even tougher time because they were identified with him. And that actually brings it right home to the 21st century. You see... These blessings, these woes, are kind of symbolic. He's not suggesting for one moment that real disciples are always hungry, always weeping, but what he is saying is they are always ready to pay the price of following Christ. And the price of following Christ is going to get increasingly costly in this nation. But I hope you're not depressed by that. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Dick Lucas, um, 
St. Helens fame, City of London. Um, came to Chessington about 10 years ago at one of our anniversaries. Don't have a real anniversary. I think we're just celebrating the opening of the King Center. And he talked about the fact that we are not normal Christianity in this country. In that, he said, normal Christianity is Christians around the world, in Asia, Middle East, in Africa, South America, facing persecution on account that they belong to Christ. And he was saying, that's actually normal Christianity. We've been rather cosseted by it because of the benefits, oddly enough, of the gospel in our country over a couple of hundred years. But persecution is the norm. And we're finding it a bit odd, but actually the Bible says it's not odd, it's norm. It's norm if you get a tough time at home for the right reasons, because of your faith in Christ. It's norm if you don't get that promotion, because they know if they promote you there, it's going to cause difficulty, because you're a man and woman of integrity, and you won't go along with the scam. It's the norm if in your medical profession you don't advance, because you won't go along with some of the ethnically dubious and frankly immoral and anti-God increasing behavior that permeates our society. You see, this is greatly encouraging, isn't it? Jesus is saying that these are the marks of a real Christian. It's not about superficial things. It's actually about this willingness to be identified with him, to hold fast to the apostolic gospel, to be so devoted to Christ and so aware of the glory that awaits you in heaven, that right now you're ready to follow him, painful and hard though it will be. There's a warning here indeed, isn't there? There's a stark contrast, did you notice, in these, in these blessings and woes. Blessed are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you already have received your comfort. Now that is totally contrary to our culture, isn't it? Where in our culture does it say, blessed are you or poor, yours is the kingdom of God? Yeah, big deal, so what? No, celebrity is wealth, comfort. Jesus turns it all on its head, you see. You could go on and do the same thing with all these uh, blessings and woes. It turns the received wisdom of the age on its head. And Jesus is saying, this is it. You can't love God and mammon. You can't combine being a Christian with wanting a good time now. Nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with food, nothing wrong with wealth. These are things to be richly enjoyed and used for the glory of God. So if God blesses you with wealth, it's your great opportunity to invest for eternity. Why? Because you belong to eternity. And you take seriously Jesus' warnings about misusing your money now, but investing it wisely for the future. It turns everything on its head, inside out. But it's not done out of duty. It's done out of delight. Because here's the God who's come for you and for me to bring us into this kingdom. We think about that. We think, why me, Lord? Everything I've done in life would negate me ever getting into your kingdom if it was left to performance, if it was left to being good. The longer you go on, you realize you can't be good. In fact, some of the basic motives of your heart are just inevitably biased to doing wrong, to doing evil, to being self-centered, to being destructive of other people. 
And if you haven't learned that about yourself, you don't know yourself. So I can't earn my way to this kingdom. But here's the God who comes to seek and to save the helpless, the lost, people like you and I. And he calls us through the gospel to himself. And he says to each of us, follow me. Follow me, even though it's going to mean loss in this life. Even though it's going to mean foregoing things in this life. Even though it means being persecuted in this life. Because actually, those things, compared to the treasure of having Christ, are trivial. Absolutely trivial. And you know that. Sometimes God has to send really tough things into our life, doesn't he? For us to wake up to this. What really matters is that I know Christ, that he knows me, that I'm part of his kingdom. As Dan read for us from Psalm 32 at the beginning, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. No greater blessing than that. I don't have to perform. I'm accepted because of Christ. That's why I love him. That's why I'm devoted to him. That's why I want to follow him. It's not a duty. It's a delight. Why wouldn't I love such a saviour? And Jesus is simply flagging this up. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. It turns all our wrong thinking inside out and on its head. And instead, it draws us into the most secure and beautiful and wonderful place in all the world. You see, what will matter in a hundred years' time is not whether you're British or French or Nigerian, whatever we might enjoy by our ethnic roots by our nationality. The only thing that will matter is whether I belong to this kingdom, this eternal kingdom. So when that time comes, when you, as I will, stand before this Christ, this judge of all the earth, will I have the right papers? Will my mark, will my life bear the marks of Believing the gospel, the doctrine, living by it, devoted to Christ and a disciple of Christ. As one preacher of an earlier age put it, heaven must be in us before we can be in heaven. Heaven must be in us before we can be in heaven. But if heaven is in us, that's a glorious privilege. And it brings with it a responsibility to simply go and live for Jesus wherever he takes us, wherever he places us, to live for his glory as part of this eternal kingdom. And I can hang loose on everything because I've got the best. I've got Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll constantly remind us how radical the life is that Jesus calls us to, how countercultural. But we pray, Lord, that we might not see that simply in some kind of negative way, but actually as it really is in the best life to be had, in the most glorious privilege to be received, in the most wonderful hope that can be had in all the world, that transcends death and the grave and lifts us to a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, may heaven be in every single one of us here this morning.
because we know unless it isn't already within us, we will not be in heaven. And Father, if we're here this morning, we don't, in all honesty, yet know you. Thank you that we've been able to come here and thank you that you've given us the opportunity of understanding what this Christian message is really about. And we pray, Father, that the truth of your word would begin to impact our lives. And that might be an uncomfortable thing for us, but it will be a wonderful thing if it leads us to Christ. So please do your work, the work that you alone can do by your spirit, whether we know you or don't know you this morning. But if we don't know you, Lord, we pray that we might run to Jesus before the day is out even. Lord, hear our prayer. Thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for the little ones and those that have taught them this morning. We do pray for them growing up in this culture and this society. We ask, Lord, that early in life you would draw them to the Saviour, that they might be solid men and women of God who would stand as your citizens in the generations to come. So, Lord, hear us and cause your face to shine upon this church, I pray. May the leaders here, may the church here, may the members of this community know grace upon grace as we seek to make this glorious Saviour known. Amen. Amen.